0: Market Lane Coffee respectfully acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we live and work. We pay respect to their elders and to the history, legacy and contemporary cultures of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.
1: I do that stuff because... I'm kind of following an internal compass. We have people who I think are talented, engaged, wonderful people. And to me, it's like, I feel a great sense of responsibility to give people the opportunities that I can to allow them
0: to flourish in their workplaces. Welcome to Coffee Up by Market Lane Coffee a podcast for our growing community of like-minded businesses who want to serve delicious, ethical, and sustainable coffee. My name's Tyson. In our second podcast, following our inaugural Leadership in Hospitality event, Kai from our HR team sits down with Hugh Murdoch from Wildlife Bakery to chat about team development and culture. Prior to founding wildlife, Hugh was the manager of Market Lane's Greatly Missed Therry Street shop and he was instrumental in helping us to establish a presence in the Queen Victoria Market. In 2016, Hugh opened Wildlife Bakery on Albert Street in Brunswick East. The bakery quickly became an integral part of the Brunswick East community and a destination for people seeking out Melbourne's best sourdough bread. Hugh recently opened an outpost, Wildlife Suprette, on Sydney Road in Brunswick. In this conversation, Hugh talks with characteristic thoughtfulness and frankness about the way he's worked to foster a positive culture at wildlife, the privilege and challenge of being an employer in hospitality, the benefits of cross-training team members, and how at times being a business owner can challenge his own moral compass.
2: Without further ado, here are Hugh and Kai. So on the night, we sort of covered... This question, but I think it'd be really good if you could delve a little bit deeper because five minutes wasn't quite enough time. How would you describe your company culture at Wildlife Bakery and what are you doing to foster this culture and get staff to buy into it?
1: Yeah. um, So I think what I said at the event, what I wanted to speak about a bit was autonomy and the different approach I guess I have for better or worse about giving people as much autonomy as possible uh, within, within their departments. My approach, I guess, has always been that I trust my taste in things. And I think that if you open up a business, a food business particularly, you have to trust that your instinct about what is good is right. Because if you don't trust that, you're not going to have a successful product. I'm not a trained baker, I'm not a trained chef, I'm not a trained pastry chef. The only training that I've had really is in coffee and in front of house. And so I didn't really ever go into the business expecting that I would be the authority on how to do things. And it's challenging not being an expert in things that you know the business relies upon so much. It's always funny talking to people about how I decided to open up a bakery having not been a baker at all. And I think that if you look at like restaurants around, you do see that a lot of the really well-known restaurants are opened by chefs. And a lot of the really famous restaurants are run by chefs. And those chefs may go on to then step back. But that expertise and that vision, I think is really good at helping a restaurant develop its sort of sense of purpose and you know its identity. And so it's funny to say like I'm going to open a business and not have any of that. And it does mean relying on a lot of other people to do the things that in other businesses you might say well the owner is the one who who does that. But I think that there's a lot of freedom in that as well because it sort of plays to what I like to do which is to just trust that other people can do things well. To come back roundabout to what what I initially said and what you asked, I think that that has kind of been the defining aspect of our like workplace culture is saying, there are people out there who are really talented, who wanna do things a particular way. My job is not to tell them, here is what you should wanna do. My job is to say, How can I support you making this thing that you really want to make? And then sort of taking a step back using my taste to say, okay, here, like I'm going to be the editor. You're going to have tons of good ideas. Some of them are going to be like, oh, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited that, that we can do that and we'll help you do that. Other ones is like, that's probably a good idea, but it's not really going to work for this place. I don't think I'm just going on my gut instinct sometimes and sometimes we'll look at sales or we'll look at something afterwards and say, you know, I was wrong about that or, or try things again. But I really love the idea of being able to say, you know how to do the things that you do. I just wanna help you do that. It is challenging a little bit, partly because not everyone wants autonomy. Uh, not everyone wants to think about what to do in their job and to think of like new recipes or think of new products that they want to release to the public. They just want to be able to turn up and do the job that someone has set for them. And so I think it's really important to be able to find those people and find a spot for them as well and say like, okay, yeah, you're not the person who has always wanted to do this particular thing or you're not the person who has these grand dreams about products and all that kind of stuff you just like the actual process of making bread or you enjoy the process of being paid at the end of the week and you're good at doing what you're told. So here, like, we'll we'll give you some instruction. But I do think that, that autonomy is something that if you were to ask people at Wildlife, did they have freedom to kind of do their own thing, I think the percentage would be higher than a lot of a lot of places. I don't know that it's like, you know, um, the average barista would be like, oh, yeah, I get to do whatever I want. But um, I do think that people feel like they have the capacity to make, make their decisions. We give people autonomy about how many hours they want to work. There's a lot of people who work four-day weeks. There's a lot of people who do five and four. You know, we have a lot of people on salaried positions and – Few of them are actually five-day staff. Now all the people in Viennoiserie are all doing four nine-and-a-half-hour days. So they get three days off. The bakers are talking about that. So it's not just about like what products they want to look into. It's the autonomy to sort of
2: talk about how they want to structure their work week in a way that works for them. Is that something that in terms of like the autonomy of your staff figuring out, you know, their working hours and things like that, is that something that you had from day one or is that something that's sort of grown and developed with the people in the business as well?
1: It's definitely grown in the business. Like, you know, early on, it's hard to get a handle on all of that sort of stuff. One of the easiest ways of probably setting up a business or starting anything new is to try as much as possible to say, here is a thing that everyone does, uh, that every, every business does or every workplace does, and that seems fine, so let's not rock the boat here. Like, let's just keep doing that. And that's simple stuff like, what software are you going to use? Like, what point of sale systems are you going to use? What coffee machines? Like, how does that stuff work? That's great. Let's just keep doing this. And then as you start getting the business kind of functioning, you start hearing from people who go, Well, I know this is sort of how everyone does it, but I really like working in this way. Can we try that? I think if you did that from the beginning, it would be very challenging. And I think with the workweek stuff, it takes a while for people to realize these things aren't set in stone. That there are obviously things set in stone about minimum wages and and entitlements. But to be honest, a lot of people who come into a workplace like wildlife, aren't even aware of their legal entitlements. They think that nothing is set in stone and that their boss just says, here's what we're going to pay you and they just have to say yes and they don't get any rights or anything like that. So even kind of teaching people that like there are legal minimums to things and that they have rights and that if they get injured, they make a work safe report and <laughs> those sorts of things are things that it can take time for people to kind of let sink in and then to say, Oh, yeah, if you want to work 30 hours a week instead of 38, like, that's allowed. And if I need an extra eight hours of work, I can always look for someone else to do it. Like, it doesn't bother me how many hours people want to be there if we have enough people to get the work done. Yeah, people can get a bit taken aback by that sometimes I don't know like I'm, I tend to be very easy going with that sort of stuff um, and sometimes it means you look at your roster in two weeks time and you go oh <laughs> um, this is going to be interesting but then you know like you if you approach like scheduling with the idea of like everyone knows what has to be produced every week everyone is talking to each other about when they're going on holiday when they're doing those sorts of things like we can all just work it out it doesn't have to be you have to do this particular thing all the time. It's like, oh, well, no, the, the four day thing is working well. Would you mind doing five days a week for this month? Because there's a couple of people away and they're like, that's fine. Mm, that's easy enough to, to accommodate.
2: So a lot of employers might be sort of shocked or worried when they think about giving their staff that level of autonomy. But what, what do you think are the benefits of, of giving that level of autonomy to your staff?
1: It's a good question and I'm a little bit wary about answering it because I guess it speaks to the, the problem of like me talking about my experience in the business and how I've done things versus like giving advice. I do that stuff because I'm kind of following an internal compass about this stuff. We have people who I think are talented, engaged, wonderful people And to me, it's like I feel a great sense of responsibility to give people the opportunities that I can to allow them to flourish in their workplaces. It's not like I've sat down and worked out whether there are benefits to that. The obvious benefit that you could point to would be retention. Staff retention, I would say, at Wildlife is very good. I guess that's an obvious benefit that you have people who know that you're going to keep doing your best to help them fit their work into their life as their life changes. And that means that they could stay at that workplace longer. You know, an obvious early example of that kind of thing is um, parental leave. We had a head chef a couple of years ago who needed to take parental leave. It's funny that like parental leave is still pretty Challenging in hospitality, and it's not a common thing that people talk about. And you do have a lot of people in their mid 20s where it's like, oh, well, this is great. Owning a hospitality business is great because we're just going to hire people before they have kids. And once they start having families, we'll just not hire them anymore. So we don't have to worry about parental leave or daycare or weekend sports or school timetables or anything like that. That's something for other industries. We're just going to hire people in their mid 20s who are happy to work as much as you'll give them until they find a proper job. But if you say, we actually wanna keep people who are parents and who have family lives, you need to have more flexibility about timetables and you need to start saying, how are we going to retain you when you need to have time off for this kind of thing? And I think that the experience of like figuring out what we would do as a business while she was away on parental leave and then how we would bring her back with the number of shifts that she felt capable of doing and that she wanted to do as her kid started going to daycare, that maybe was a really early model of, for us of seeing how that stuff was things that you can just negotiate and you can just talk about and say, okay, well, if you think that you can do two days a week for the next six months, that's what you can do. Let's figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, as far as the benefits, it's just one of those things where it's like, it just has to be that way. I, I, I don't know how I would do it any differently.
2: So I guess with hospitality businesses in general, it's not something that we have to consider very often because long retention isn't something that we're necessarily blessed with all the time. But I, I think it's also really important to recognize the fact that there are challenges with long retention. I guess for wildlife, have you come to a point in your life cycle, like the life cycle of the business, sorry, that you've had people stay with you for five years or so? Have you come to a point where they can no longer grow into different roles in the business? Like you've sort of reached that capacity for their growth? Um,
1: it is it is challenging. There are a limited number of roles in the business that are sort of senior positions. We've certainly had staff there now for long enough that they've been in the same position for a long time and they're not going to become a manager. So there's very limited career growth and that is going to mean that people move on at some point. And so you're probably talking about people staying at a workplace for five years rather than one year when you have good retention. And I think that it is something that I'm quite curious to see how the industry grapples with this stuff in the long run because I think that there's clearly a movement within some parts of the industry to sort of professionalise and to treat hospitality jobs as jobs that are like long-term things, but you're not going to keep giving pay rises that aren't sort of indexed to a barista if they keep being a barista um, for five years for 10 years for 20 years for 30 years you know and I think that most hospital industries kind of just assume that they don't have to think about things 10 years in the future and that's not something that they're going to going to pay attention to it's like well you know maybe in two years it's going to be an issue but it is something to grapple with when you say okay well you've taken this person who was 20 years old and trained them to become a coffee professional or a pastry professional or whatever. And now they're 45 and they've got 25 years left of work in them. Um, And they're going to need to work for another 25 years at minimum because they haven't earned enough money to retire early. They're not going to have a good super, they're not going to own their own house. And like, where are they going next? Because if they're not going anywhere within your workplace, sure, they might go somewhere else, but like, don't you have a responsibility to that person? Don't you have a responsibility to say, well, what are we gonna do with the 45 year old, the 50 year old, the 55 year old pastry chef who is not a manager? Because in, in traditional businesses, that person kind of keeps the same job. You know, if you were a teacher, you don't have to become the principal to have a lifetime career as a teacher. You, you can just be a teacher. It would be naive of me to pretend that this isn't also happening in the world across industry everywhere, that jobs are getting casualized, that contracts are getting shorter and shorter, and you're left with this group of people who are kind of paid okay until they're in their late 40s and then if they lose their job, it's going to be really hard for them to find work. Um, that's gotten a bit dire. Like, I, I don't know, um, I don't know how to, <laughs> <laughs> to frame this back to an optimistic thing, but it's a real, it's a real challenge. And I think that it's something that we need to, to think about because hospitality is such a youth-focused industry and it really tries to just be like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll just keep hiring people in their 20s and, and not pay attention to what happens after that. And, in a place like wildlife, there is some career growth and maybe you start offering more career growth by saying, oh, we'll, we'll open a new location and then you can be the manager of that location. But if you open a new location, you're still hiring more young people. Yeah. The ratio of senior positions to junior positions doesn't necessarily change. And, yeah, I don't know. It's not like uh, the margins in small businesses, hospitality... Can realistically say, Oh, we're just going to start you know giving everyone like meaningful pay rises every year without them filling senior positions. it's um I'm a big fan of of paying people properly, but you' like everybody knows that there's no money there to be paying people everyone eighty thousand dollars a year or you know something like that. So it's a challenge. as I sort of said, we have some way to kind of move that by saying, okay, well, you've worked as a baker for four years or you've worked as a pastry chef for f- five years or whatever, have you given thought about what you want to, might maybe want to do next and maybe we can help you make that transition? And I do think that there's a, a reasonable way of doing that, partly because maybe it's a good thing to just say, okay, well, there's an aspect of hospitality which is essentially manual labour and manual labour is physically demanding and it's something that, even aside from the the fact that like it doesn't pay maybe well enough to be doing for your whole life, baking bread up until your 60s is gonna be really hard on your body. So maybe the, the natural job progression is to work as a baker for 15 years or 20 years and then move into something else. And whether that's consulting or whether that's being a manager or whether that's doing something that uses that experience in a more kind of, desk jobby way, or it's something of actually moving into your other interests, maybe the job is just
2: to say, how are we going to help you manage that transition? Which is what we've tried to do with with some people. Um, I think that's such an interesting point. And I like how you didn't really mention ownership as like an option necessarily for what's next for people. Because I think as an industry, we've almost conditioned ourselves to think that, you know, there are two paths in hospitality. One is ownership and the other one is to, you know, go and get a quote unquote real job, you know, which isn't the case for everyone. You know, not everyone is suited to be a business owner or necessarily to even be in a leadership position in hospitality. So I think, yeah, it's it's interesting.
1: Yeah. Like you don't, you don't say that to people in a lot of other professional contexts and like ownership requires capital and it's true that like in in some areas you'd say okay well if you're a really good chef your dream is to one day open up your own restaurant or whatever and certainly there are there are avenues to doing that but I think it reveals in some ways the fact that there's a lot of stuff that's not talked about in this industry there's a lot of hidden money in this industry it's all very well to say ah oh, you know I I worked at I could say that story where it's like, oh, I worked at Market Lane for six years. And before that I worked at this other restaurant and before that I worked at this bar and I did that and I built up this experience. And at some point I decided to open up my own place and I opened up a bakery and that's great. And it just leaves out the fact that opening a bakery costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I didn't open up a bakery because I saved up money from working as a barista. I opened up a bakery because my dad's a lawyer And he was able to like loan me the money to open up a bakery. And the same is true of lots and lots of other businesses that like, I am not someone who just grew up in a working class environment and worked hard and happened to have enough money to, or like convince a bank to lend me money to open up a bakery. And it's really disingenuous the way that everyone skirts around that. It's, it's expensive, particularly in a place like Melbourne, to open up a business and you may be able to open up a coffee only place. You might be able to go, okay, we've got a place that's the size of this room. We're going to rent a coffee machine and we're going to borrow 30 grand from family or whatever, or we're going to remortgage the house or something like that. And we'd be able to open up a little place. And people have done that and like good on them um, and they they should be celebrated. But it's hard and the profit expectations of a business like that are really no better than... I mean, my old boss used to say who did something like that, she just bought herself a job. Her job wasn't paying her any better than if she'd just worked as a barista at another place. But at least she knew she wasn't going to get fired from this one because she owned it that was really the only difference like she had that security of saying well i have a business i can keep paying myself as long as i come into work every day but it's still a it's still a five figure job and a many hour job it's a good question i think it's very obvious like very very true that like that's the typical way that we talk about it so we go oh you work at this place and then eventually you open your own place I'm, i mean have you gone to a bank and asked them for money to open up a business? Like, it doesn't happen. And you start going around and you go, Oh, this is weird because I've talked to all these people who own businesses and they said they borrowed money and now I try and no one's lending it to me. And it's like, Oh, no, they didn't borrow money from a bank. They borrowed money from their parents and they borrowed money from their parents where, like, Oh, what are the repayment terms on that? It's like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like they they get to come in and have a free sandwich yeah like that's the <laughs> repayment term that's like sure i mean it's written up as a loan because then it means that like when your suppliers come to you for for money when you go out of business your your parents have the first right of of getting all of the money back like it's a It's written up as a loan because the accountants and the lawyers want it written up as a loan, not because there's any like repayment expectation half the time. Like it's, um, we all know like restaurants are not good investments. The other thing is you have is like rich people who want to invest in a a fancy chef and you'd have a lot of restaurants that are owned by, like that have that kind of chef-led restaurant in Melbourne where initially a lot of the money came from investors who didn't need the money they wanted fancy places to show off and to take their clients to and give them status. And it's like at some point you go, well, I've got so much money, I might as well put some of it into a restaurant because then I'm like, hey, I, co- I own a restaurant. Like, and it's really cool. And I get to go there and have cocktails and look important. If any of my employees can get access to that stream of revenue, like, <laughs> you know, good luck to them. Like, yeah. uh, that would be great. You know, thinking like, oh, well, I happen to know this person, and they're a property developer, and they're um, they're looking for uh, a status symbol. So why not open a fancy restaurant in the CBD? Like that's that's terrific, um, but it's uh, it's unrealistic, I think, for most people.
2: The way that you run wildlife is, for want of a better term, like quite a progressive model for a hospitality business, and I wonder is that something that you always intended to do or is, has it come about because of the changes in sort of the industry as a whole or?
1: Um, yeah, I I think it's more just my ambivalence about being a business owner. Like I, I enjoy the challenges of owning a business and I find it very satisfying being able to sort of develop a business and product where I get to make all of those decisions and get to hire amazing people and help support them and all that kind of thing. But, like, I'm kind of betraying my overall political feelings in order to be a business owner, which is that, like, I don't have positive feelings about business ownership. I don't have positive feelings about how the the whole system works. And so you kind of try to find a balance like it's like wake up every morning and it's like well how can i do this in a way that i feel like not guilty or not as guilty about the fact that like i agree with the theory that like profit is money that is stolen from employees now, the easy way of benefiting, like the easy way of dealing with that is just not profiting, which is what I've managed to do. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not stealing employee labor because, uh, because I'm not making any profit. But like business owners make money by taking the labor of their employees and selling that labor and skimming some of it off as their own, their own money. Like that's what capitalism is. And if you agree with that, then it's hard to be like, oh, I, I feel really good about owning a business. Um, so yeah, maybe it's just progressive through, through guilt or like it's to try to find a way of running it as equitably as, as possible. And, um, you know, it's a funny one because like I think a lot of us in food, particularly who care about like the quality of what we actually eat are very big on small business as opposed to big business. But small businesses tend to be more exploitative less efficient than big businesses. The pay tends to be worse at small businesses. There are more cases of wage theft, those sorts of things in small businesses than there are in big businesses. Though obviously in Australia, wage theft has been massive at really big ones as well. But small businesses are also where the actual good stuff comes from. So that's a that's a thing to grapple with as well. It's like, well, keeping things like independent owned little shops is where you actually get things that you want to consume and people do like it and and staff like working there you know like if people keep turning up every day and wanting to be there and wanting to stay then you can feel like the guilt is a little bit assaged by like (laughs) you know like by that it's like well they seem to think that they're being they're being treated okay as far as progressive goes though like i don't know i mean it would be more progressive for it to be a co-op like it would be more progressive for it to have a different business structure You know, so we're like really just scratching the surface, I think, at wildlife. I I don't know that I'd want to claim too much um, beyond that we like try to make sure that we go slightly above the minimums.
2: So we asked this question of you on the evening, but I think it'd be nice if we could sort of expand a little bit on it. Wildlife is a really diverse business, you know, a cafe, a bakery, and a grocery. And you do a lot of cross-training between those different departments in the business. So I guess, what are the benefits of the cross training and how do you set up staff to have a successful journey with you?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question. I think when I spoke about it at the event, I expressed some ambivalence towards it, at least from a business case. I'm not certain that it's always in a business's interest to train people for new areas just because they're curious about that stuff and I do think that you run the risk of having this situation where people go oh I'd love to learn how to make bread and that looks really fun like can I do some shifts in the bakery and you go okay sure and you put them on as an extra because you can't have them suddenly being one of the team so you add a couple of extra shifts in the bakery and you kind of teach them how and they go yeah that was great really interesting I mean I don't want to be a baker so I'm not actually going to step in and like be a, be a full member of the bakery team, you've just spent, you know, an extra thousand dollars giving shifts that you wouldn't have otherwise needed. And I think that when you have a business that has a lot of different areas, that is a, a risk. And you're also gonna have this thing where people might apply for a job in one area, but they're applying because they like something else that you do. And they go, ah, oh, I've kind of always wanted to make cakes. And you go well, sure, but like we need people who actually know how to do it, not just um, not just people who like the thought of of making cakes. But the obvious benefit is sort of what we talked about before, which is career growth. We have limited number of senior positions available, and if someone has been working on the floor for a couple of years, but they they like working at the business and they want to do something that is going to pay them more, then cross-training allows you to find areas that are worth more to you as a business owner to have someone in in that field. So an obvious one is to say, okay, well, making coffee is great, but it's not always that hard to find people making coffee. But if you were to start working in the bakery and becoming a baker, the bakers get paid more. It's a more professional and more skilled position. And so if we can support that, then that's going to mean that you can get more money. And I think holistically, like, as we sort of said before, like it's, it's not a particularly high paying industry, but it is an industry that has a lot of things that people find genuinely interesting and engaging to do. And if you can kind of provide those experiences and that extra learning to staff, it's sort of like, it's a win-win. And it does mean that you end up with staff who have a pretty strong attachment to the business overall. You end up with staff often who have a really good big picture view of how the business functions because they're seeing it from all those different angles. They're not just seeing it as that one area that they've worked in, but they're seeing the way that it all operates together. And that means that they end up building up a lot of knowledge about how the business works that can be really valuable. But again, sort of like with your first question, I've never really done like an analysis of whether like it's good for business to do it. If someone says to me, they're thinking of moving into this other area, and it allows me to keep that staff member then i'm I'm just going to find a way of making it happen and I think that if you get people who are good employees, you do what you can to hold on to them. Our head pastry chef, former head pastry chef who was you know instrumental in setting up this incredible offering of cakes and biscuits and pastries and things at wildlife and really put her mark on that and was a great example of someone who had autonomy to really develop an entire department in a way that she thought was best, started to want to move on and now she's our HR manager. And that lack is an incredibly satisfying thing. It's satisfying for me to be able to hold on to a person who has given so much to the business and who's been such a valuable employee and is such a great person. But it also means that not only is she getting to do something that she's sort of moving into that she's finding interest in she is getting turn a bit more money and her career prospects after she leaves is going to be a lot better you know if she stays at wildlife for another few years as an hr manager she will have experience as an hr manager that means she can go and get like a proper job where she you know will get even more money and um and that's a very rewarding thing and something i'm very proud of and wish that we could do even more of um i think that it's a yeah, it feels like a sort of unambiguously positive thing from that that side.
2: Following on from that, you did mention that there is very much a cost associated to training people and to create environments where they can learn in a supported sort of manner. So yeah. why invest in professional development? Because the cost is, like you mentioned, very real.
1: Yeah. Um, most of the answers that I've given have been like, like emotional answers or, or answers about like, I guess... Questions that I've attempted to grapple with sort of morally in some way. So I'll do the opposite here and just be like, what is the business case for doing that? I think that the obvious reason to invest in training in a business like mine is that it allows you to have a lot of control over the kind of knowledge and the kind of training that your staff have that is not prevalent in the broader industry. And I think, like, I kind of learned a lot of this from Market Lane, I think. You know, when Market Lane opened, specialty coffee was quite a new thing in Melbourne, if not the world. And in a lot of ways, when I opened Wildlife, it was sort of similar with this kind of style of bakery that is now much more popular in Melbourne. But five years ago, it was much less so. And being a baker is a very, common uh, profession. It's very structured, like there's an apprenticeship and people do apprenticeships to become bakers, but the apprenticeship system such that I've learnt about in Australia is really geared towards teaching people how to be bakers at Baker's Delight or at Woolworth's or you know, these large supermarkets or chain bakeries where they are operating equipment to produce a particular kind of product. If you hire people out of that, then they might be great and I think we we should definitely hire those people but you're still going to need to train them how to make bread in the way that we want to make bread. You're as likely to find a home baker who has done the kind of recipes that we use as you are to find someone who's gone through a three-year apprenticeship to have done it. So an obvious reason to invest in training is I guess because there's no one else doing it and... Again, particularly like five years ago, there were fewer bakeries doing the kind of thing that we were doing that if you wanted to find a talented baker, there weren't a lot of people out there. Same with croissants. It's like, if you were to say 10 years ago, okay, we want to open up a bakery. We want to find someone who's really good at making croissants. Where has that person been working at beforehand? They've probably been working in a place that makes stuff that's like, that's fine, but not really what we want. So if you wanted to make something that was of the style and the quality that we're doing at Wildlife, you'd have to teach them how to do it anyway. And so it's almost like a good indicator that you're doing something good, that you have to do the training. Because if you didn't have to do the training, maybe that would be indicative of the fact that there's a bunch of other places out there doing what you're doing. Because there's a bunch of people out there who know how to do it already. Whereas if you're looking at them being like, oh, no one... No one really seems to have the skills to do this thing that we want. It's like, oh wow, that's maybe because you're, like, you're doing something new. So maybe it's a good sign. And again, like you know, going back to cross training, like I just think it's it's something that we owe people. Um, so that would go back to morally. But like, I think you know, on the job training is a pretty time honored tradition. I, it's it's weird. Like I think there are places that don't seem to th- see that as their role, but it's like that's your responsibility is to is to train people to do things you can't just keep expecting other people to do all that for you for free and honestly like a bit of that apprenticeship system is kind of like that you're just saying "Uh, um like can you just government can you just like supply me a bunch of people who are trained so i don't have to invest money into doing it but like I'm also then going
2: to complain about taxes or something.
1: (laughs) It's like,
2: you know, just like pull your weight. Um, Yeah. Uh, Thanks so much for the time, Hugh. It's been really lovely chatting.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you are interested in learning a little more about Wildlife Bakery, you can visit their website, which is wildlifebakery.com. You can find them on most social media platforms at Wildlife Bakery. And if nothing but the real thing will suffice, you can find Wildlife Bakery at 90 Albert Street in Brunswick East, or Wildlife Suppress at 365 Sydney Road, Brunswick.